This is the Packet Pushers Podcast. Sometimes it's a place where 30 years of networking craft has been hidden behind a cupboard or, you know, papered over with some cheap linoleum. And sometimes it's like a beacon of hope shining across the fields on a rainy day and leading you to hope for a better life. Somewhere out there, there's a mythical infrastructure that can be cloudified, virtualized, overlaid, abstracted, and even treated like cattle. But here in the real world where the real money is, the story's about looking at these 30-year-old applications which are covered in grubby little vendor paw prints, purchase orders, and years and decades of hand-me-downs from people who used to know what it did. The real story is it's not about where you've been, but where you're going. Once an old manager said to me, Greg, he said, don't tell me what you did for me yesterday. Tell me what you're going to do for me tomorrow. So today, we're going to talk about private clouds instead of public clouds and just why private clouds are here. Joining me, of course, as always, is Mr. Ethan Banks. And also with us is Greg Neerman. Greg, please tell the audience a wee bit about yourself. Well, my name is Greg Neerman. I work for Hitachi Data Systems as the technology strategist and evangelizer. But a lot of people know me in the industry for my podcast, Speaking in Tech, which I do with Ed Saipet and Sarah Vella. Mm. Uh, t- kind of taking the summer off from that. Uh, got some recent work done in my mouth. So taking the summer off from, from that podcast so I can do your podcast, Greg. <laughs> Busman's Holiday. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when I go on holiday, I go and work for another company that does exactly the same thing. <laughs> so private clouds, right? Private clouds. Everybody is moving to the public cloud, and if you believed all of the uh, the walla and the smoke and the mirrors and the you know all the analysts and all the media, you'd think that ninety nine percent of the the net of the companies in the world have all moved to the public cloud. But the reality is that Amazon AWS, the biggest one ever, is only a $10 billion business in a $1 trillion market. So, you know, the, the reality is, is that private cloud is still around and it's not going anywhere soon, right? That's absolutely correct. And, and I think there's, there's this myth that there's one way to do cloud. And, and Greg, you and I have both been in this industry long enough to realize that there's no one way to do anything in IT. Hmm. And and for quite a while now, if, if you've read the pundits, read the analysts, there's a lot of momentum around public cloud. And, I, and sometimes when I push back on that, it's not because I'm against public cloud. It's just because there's other ways of accomplishing the task that you're trying to accomplish and ignoring those other ways. I, I, I think, you know, like you mentioned, you know, if you look at what Amazon, AWS's size is relative to the total IT industry, clearly there's other ways of accomplishing these tasks. Well, I mean, AWS is a fraction an absolute fraction of the total IT spend that goes on today, right? Keeping in mind that when we talk about, like in your blog post, you have a blog post, the link will be in the show notes, where AWS is $8 billion over roughly $480 billion spent in data center systems and enterprise software with over 60% growth. So today it represents less than 2% of total IT spend. And that's with all of the market hype going on around it. That's right. And, and, you know, you've got to look at what else is going on in the industry and what that trend is. And I think the, the challenge here is that we don't have a lot or haven't had a lot of good information on what is really going on out there. What What is being adopted? How it's mm. being adopted? What are the plans for six months, two years down the road? And I base my blog posts on research that uh, 451 Research put together. And in my opinion, this research is probably the most comprehensive about what's going out there today and what the six-month and two-year plans are for a lot of enterprises. And it, it, I think we need to understand what this, what this research tells us. And I think end users want to understand what this research tells us so they can start putting some guidance into their plans as well. Yeah, and I, and I think 
the, the mistake that people make is that the reason that you're hearing about public cloud is that, A, AWS built an $8 billion business in eight years or something, right? Pretty, which is a no mean feat. Don't get me wrong. It's, you know, $8 billion. Is that a year or is that a quarter? It's a year. That's a year right now. Yeah, that's that's the run rate. Yeah. So it's about the same size. You know, Cisco ACR, v, v blocks are the same size. They're on a $2 billion one rate too, aren't they? But but they're not growing at 60%. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nobody really wants a V-block quite the same way they want AWS, that's for sure. And there are definitely things you can do in the public cloud that you can't do easily in a private cloud. But the flip side of it is is that I think one of the things that people forget is there's lots of things that we actually do on-prem today in our own infrastructure that simply can never, ever be in the public cloud. That's right. And I think uh, one of the things here, and one of the things I cover in the blog post, is, is the business use cases for public cloud, private cloud, and hosted private clouds, which are another element to this. I was actually kind of surprised when I look at this research, mm. what the adoption rates were for uh, off-premise private clouds, uh, which I, w- was pretty impressive, quite candidly. But if you look at the business cases for each of these, you kind of see where public cloud fits in and where par- private cloud fits in. So what you're referring to is that in 451, you've got a piece of research that talks about cloud usage, and people are saying roughly 40% of people are doing on-prem private cloud in six months. 60% of people will be doing on-premise private cloud. How much of that is syntax, and how much of that is real, do you think? You know, it's a tough thing to debate, and... I, I think you got to take it at face value because if you start dissecting this beyond what the research shows, you get caught in a trap where you just don't know um, all the all the answers. You know, one of the things I put in, in my conclusion in the blog post is I think the only way the pundits can discredit this kind of research is well, it depends on what you call a cloud, right? Yeah. And the argument typically goes well, if it's a private cloud, it doesn't have all the characteristics of AWS. Mm. And that's the kind of thing I push back on because why does AWS get to dictate the characteristics of what a cloud looks like? Because what if a business requirements don't align to the AWS public cloud? And again, this isn't being negative to AWS because I think that there's a lot of value in the services they provide. But I don't know if business requirements always align to that definition of what AWS calls a cloud. Well, let me take an antagonistic view there, right? So some of the things that are great about AWS is on demand, you can just go over there and click a few buttons and the provisioning's done. Um, for most of us who work in enterprise IT, the idea of being able to click a few buttons and, and getting something provisioned is just not not going to be possible with the technology we have today. But my point in response to that, which I'm going to answer my own question just because I can, is, <laughs> you know, the pace of technology innovation in enterprise IT for the last 30 years has been glacial. They haven't right. got systems, right? But there's nothing stopping us from implementing systems that do that. Oh, no, that, that, that's absolutely right. And I, again, Greg, I keep going back to, you know, what are the characteristics of public cloud that are, uh, that are attractive? But what are the characteristics of private cloud that are attractive? And it always comes back to a, a common denominator around security and control of data. And I think the pundits and some of the analysts continually dismiss that. And you, you, you see a push now from AWS and some analysts that say, oh, no, no, we got security figured out. And you don't have to worry about control of data. You can put all your stuff here. 
it, the reality for the enterprises, they don't want to do that. Uh, I shouldn't say that in, 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 such, uh, in such broad terms. Mm-hmm. Generally, their first concern is going to be security and control of that data. Yeah. And they're going to be looking for the tools and resources that alleviate that concern that they have. Uh, for me, the companies, I've done some advisory work with companies, and one of the biggest concerns is now that AWS is going to compete with you. So keep in mind that for anybody who's built a significant business on top of AWS, AWS takes that business and does it themselves. Look at Dropbox and storage. Look at Netflix. They went and they worked out how much money Netflix was doing because they've got access to the consumption model. And then they built Amazon Prime and put video in it. That's right. right? So it's not for me, it's not only is it about control of data, but I think at a CEO level, you should be very concerned about putting your business on AWS because, you know, if Jeff Bezos decides that your business is attractive, he can use information, he can use the intelligence that he's got inside his existing business to decide whether to drive a competitive business out of yours. You know, that's always amazed me about how Netflix grew. And you look at how they are in competition with Amazon Prime. And I, for some reason, I can't reconcile that, that, that competition. Could you imagine if that happened in the enterprise IT space between competitors? Yeah. Uh, well, the thing is that, you know, everybody holds Netflix up as some, um, you know, chalice of hope. You know, it's like the promised thing. But the secret about Netflix is less than 10% of their IT infrastructure is actually in AWS. Do you know that? You know, I've I've seen varying numbers around that. I guess it doesn't really matter because how many enterprises do we know are like Netflix? Well, you know, Netflix's business model is still tied to, although they're getting away from it, to Hollywood, where their content is. And right. if Hollywood decides to pull the content, Netflix is out of business. So they walk a very thin line. And to me, the reason that Netflix continues to use AWS and doesn't move into its own infrastructure like most big companies do is, A, because Netflix actually doesn't use that much AWS. The bulk of its um, technology is actually in the content delivery network that it runs around the world. So um, about 50 weeks ago, 50 shows ago, we did a podcast with a university, and Netflix puts a co- uh, comes and installs racks of gear in their data centers so that when people watch Netflix while they're at uni, they just stream it locally. So, right. you know, they have thousands of data centers. If you want to look at it at like that, like those content delivery pops, they've got thousands of them all over the world. And that's where 70 to 80 to 90% of their infrastructure is. Their actual AWS is very, very small. It is. And I, I think the interesting point that you brought up before is think about all that intelligence um, of how that that the, that content content gets delivered, right? Mm. And AWS has insight to all of that. Even though the the physical infrastructure that's distributing that content is, like you said, distributed, um, it, it you know they're still surrendering a, a piece of their business to AWS in that model. What about? Um, are you finding customers saying to you that the lack of control over costs, like people keep telling me that public clouds are cheaper, right? And I, every time I've looked at public cloud, it's not cheaper. Right, it's significantly more expensive because they have to um, the capex that they spend to build those facilities has to be has to be um, costed for over time, and so when you take capex and turn it into opex, it gets inherently more expensive. But um, the 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 second part of the public cloud is that you actually don't know how much you're going to be billed, right? And the third part is you're supposed to get cheaper, but I haven't seen any price reductions in 2016. 
No, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I think generally that enterprises have caught on to that that CapEx versus OpEx trap, that, it, you know, what the actual costs are aren't predictable, like you said, mm. but the fact that when you look at your, your total investment and what you're providing in your own data center and how you allocate those costs are a big way of trying to rationalize what path you're going to go down for your infrastructure investment, especially if you're talking about IS, right? Mm. So the, the, the CapEx versus OpEx argument I, it looks good on paper, but I, the, it comes back to how those companies are prioritizing their IT investments that really vets that out. Because I could make the argument for AWS that if you're doing a small little trial or a project that you can jump in and jump out, mm. you could probably rationalize the cost for public cloud. But if you're talking about something where you're providing you know, IT services across your global organization yeah. over a period of five years, that's where the costs get different, and I think that's where it becomes a little bit more challenging. I, I've not, every time I've done the numbers, now, admittedly, there are, probably in my mind, there's a bunch of executives who don't really want to be executives, and they're not very good at being in managers, right? And the idea of... <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. A substantial number of them in IT, I think, too. Um, more than most parts. is, And the attraction of saying, I can get rid of my infrastructure team by just moving to the cloud is powerful, right? If you're an executive, you can say, I could get rid of 50 heads or 100 heads and just, you know, see all those people down there doing networking and things I don't understand. I can get rid of them and replace them with a fixed, you know, with a cloud cost. I think that's very attractive sales pitch, although the reality is not very true. Well, you know, the challenge there, Greg, is that your reasons and your motivations for enabling a cloud are all off. If you're doing it because of costs, you haven't really thought through. You really need to look at your business model and find out how does IT best support your business model and what your initiatives are from a business perspective. If you're going into this just with, hey, I need to reduce my IT cost by 30%, mm. and you're going to try to find you know some magic button that's going to get you there, mm. then this whole approach is the, is the wrong approach then. Because you've got to start with what yeah. your business requirements are and what your business goals are. It, and I can't emphasize this enough because, Greg, I know you've seen this too. Yeah. You know, when people go into this with, you know, my IT department needs to shave 30% off of our budget for next year. Yeah. And, oh, public cloud's the answer. That's, we yeah. all know that's, that's completely <laughs> backwards. That's not. Well, that, you're going to have to invest millions to do a transformation to get into the public cloud. You're probably going to re replace a significant amount of software. And if your software is broken before it goes into the public cloud, it'll still be broken in the public cloud. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it's a cultural component to this too, right? Because your whole organization has got to be structured and built to go into that direction. We, we know all about um, the, the cloud-first initiatives that, that companies are initiating. And to me, it's not really an IT problem. It's a culture problem. Mm. And it, it, you've got to fix those foundational elements first and have very clear business objectives to achieve that. It, it's not simple. It's, it's not something you can just flip a switch on. And I think that's where management sometimes kind of gets lost. We, we talk about digital transformation that a lot of companies are going through. They, they may not call it digital transformation, mm. but they have a, a very clear business objectives. And from getting from point A to point B is going to require... Um, not just the cultural component to this, you got the IT component to this. And you, you, again, you, I can't 
understate the, the cultural importance to those transformations. It's not just an IT problem. What I've seen a lot of is it's digital transformation is usually linguistic speak for um, I've got to get money for value return from my IT investment. So a lot of executives have this view that they're not getting a value you know, sufficient return out of their IT. And I would put to you that that's probably true in reality. That is, for the money they're spending on IT and the productivity gains or the, you know, competitive advantage they generate from their IT infrastructure, they're not getting what they're putting into it. Because quite often, IT teams are run on a 20-year-old business model, like things like ITIL and PRINCE2 and silos and you know, specialization. And I mean, we don't do that in other biz- other parts of the business. Why are we doing it in IT? Breaking down silos could be, you know, the, one of the greatest things that we could achieve. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, I, I think, Greg, there, the perspective you have there is, is strictly within, within the IT realm. Yeah. I think the, the important aspect here is how does the business itself want to change? Because and I guess it's kind of, it, it's so, and I, I can almost slap myself uh, as, as I'm saying this, because terms like, uh, our company names like Airbnb and Uber get thrown out there, right? As these examples of the next way to do business. And when you look at like Hertz and Marriott and, and these other big corporations, they're not going to flip a switch and turn into Uber, but they do want to be more dynamic and more responsive to their markets. And so I think that's what's driving digital transformation as opposed to purely from a, from a, a purely IT perspective. It's being business driven, not IT driven. Do you agree? Well, I guess, you know, one of the things that I've learned in 30 years of IT is that most executives and managers aren't that bright. Like, they're just not smart. (laughs) You don't think they're being that strategic? No, I don't think so. I think most of them are just like, I'm tired of working and can I go home now? I I really don't think that, you know, their idea of strategy runs pretty shallow. You'd like to think that the people in charge are smart and incredibly clever, but in reality, a lot more of them are like Trump then you realize, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope not. Jeez, not literally at least. Well, yeah, but, you know, like, you know, just there's words coming out and there's like this, they read a magazine in flight or they read some, you know, they read an online website and buzzwords come out, but I'm not sure about the reality of it. Um, right. Well, look, there's competitive pressures that that are, are there. And I think depending on what industry and in, those competitive pressures are ramping up dramatically. Hmm. So, I mean, there's one cheap aspect. Well, no, they're not. The competitive like, pressures have been the same for 500 years, 300 years, pick some time frame, right? In the 1950s, if you go and read business books, it's always like competitive pressures, having a competitive, we've got to have better productivity. They're not making any different you know, gum flappy sounds today than they were 30, 50 years ago. That's fair. Right? That's fair. But, but, but there's, there, I mean, you've got companies that are still in positions that have to, they have to change the, the, the path that they're on, right? Mm. Let's just think, and, and maybe you're right, the competitive pressures have always been there. Mm. But if you're in, in a failing or declining business or a failing or declining industry, you know what, let, let, uh, let's take a step back. Let's, let's look at, at uh, for instance, um, gas uh, and mining and exploration. There's like an old business model, right? It's been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And you look at how those industries have to transform themselves to be more cost efficient, more lean, especially with like with oil prices declining like they are. Mm. They're not making investments in exploration like they were 20, 30, 40 years ago when the prices for oil 
allowed them the, 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 the lift to be able to go out there and do further exploration. Mm-hmm. So one of the things when we talk about digital transformation that you're seeing out there is there's lots of data that they already have, uh, geographic data about exploration that they've already invested in for the past 20 years. So for them, digital transformation is about going back, being able to mine that data, being able to leverage the investments they've already made for the past 20 and 30 years and gleaming additional information out of that that wouldn't yeah. require them to put investment back into their exploration. I guess that's what I mean when I talk yeah, about But I don't understand why you would want to cut that cost. So the thing is that if you say to me, I want to cut the cost of that, right? And this will get me onto one of my favorite unicorns in that enterprise IT actually doesn't care about cost. That's a myth, right? But that's not a cost cut. That's a productivity benefit. I cannot understand how executives of companies do not see IT as a profit center, Right? The more you spend on IT, the more productive your workforce becomes. The better the tooling, the more you spend on sales management, the more you spend on accounting controls, the more you spend on automation of the sales cycle and debt collection of um, you know, account balances or financial management, being able to do financial management of the, of the money that the company's holding as cash flows. The, all of those things generate profits. But they never, ever see that as a profit. They always see IT, which is the enabler and the engine of those profits, as a cost. Well, I, I would argue that I think the oil and gas industry, those investments from exploration are moving back into IT and big data. Mm. So they can go back and, and make those investments and do, and do that deep, hard uh, research and, and big data analytics into the exploration they've already invested in. So I would argue in that case, they are actually investing more back into IT while they're investing less into actual exploration right now because the cash flows that they have just can't support I mean, because it's billions and billions and billions of dollars to, 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 to start mm-hmm. these exploration initiatives. I would just say in that specific industry, you do see a shift from yeah. uh, the traditional exploration they were doing back into IT, back into big data, and trying to use IT as an advantage um, and not just overhead. All right, let's talk about, here's one of my favorite unicorns about um, enterprise IT and the fallacy of the fact that they don't, um, they want cheap. My belief is that enterprise IT doesn't want cheap, and we know that because they often buy brands, because they own they don't go and buy the cheapest storage or the fastest storage. They buy it from a brand like EMC or Cisco or Hitachi or Pure Storage or HPE or IBM, right? And mm-hmm. they're going to buy it from a brand that they know and trust. If they were really price sensitive, they would start buying cheaper alternatives. And I think it's a myth to even consider that price is an issue for enterprise IT? Well, I, I don't disagree with you. I think part of that is risk avoidance and, and not so much about cost, right? They know, you know, if, if you're a Hitachi customer, if you're an EMC customer, if you're a pure storage customer, you know what you have. Right, and there's a level of security and in that brand loyalty, and there's less risk because you know exactly what you're going to get. You know what buttons to push if something. Yeah, breaks. but what you're going to get is you know a, a technology which is second rate. It's not the best in the market because in, inherently a large company with a brand has to protect its brand, so it's going to produce second rate, off the boil technologies that are safe and tedious. Right, and they're going to be full of features because they have to appeal to the widest audience. They're almost, in a way, it's it's completely negative incentive to buy from a branded company, in my view. Well, 
I, I would argue that it's very tough to be a tech startup these days, right? Because, you, you know, I, I think what you're pointing to is more niche and vertically focused technologies that help you accomplish your goals. And But the incentives out there today, we know what the, the, the IPO market looks like, right? Hmm. Uh, we know where, where, the, where the venture capital is going. So there's, there's, very, there, there's fewer and fewer of those Pures and Nutanixes out there. Oh, um, yeah, but that's different, right? That's a hardware startup. So right, right. I was just going to go back to you and say, the days of hardware startups is probably nearly done. Oh, yeah. I don't think there'll be two more because, you know, Pure and Nutanix, they needed hundreds of millions to get off the ground, to get products manufactured, to stock, to have warehouses, distribution chains, maintenance contracts, arms and legs, going, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think we've probably seen the last of those in IT and we're going to see a much, the trend towards commodity hardware. Absolutely. We'll, we'll be driven as much by startups doing software-only stuff because they're not going to get 50 million, 100 million, 200 million funding rounds out of the venture capital market. So I think that, like everything's moving against the days of custom hardware, custom storage arrays, yep. custom networking devices. There's no such thing as a custom server anymore. That that business is already gone, right? No, and I but, think if, if if a hardware vendor today is going to be honest with you, they're going to tell you exactly that. Mm. That this is quickly becoming commoditized and that the values in the software that that overlays that hardware. And I would also argue that the portability of that software is going to be a critical feature as well. So you're not locked into any specific hardware set. Uh, you don't think? I mean, that's what the, isn't that the value of commodity in, in the software that you're putting on top of that? Is that you've got a level, level of portability that you've got foundational mm. uh, hardware specifications that you have to meet, but that you're that there's not one one well, specific hardware vendor that locks you. Or am I am I just dreaming here? Well, that's well, that's only a very small part of it, right? Having being able to reuse an x86 server between Windows and Linux and containers and all that sort of thing is a feature. But what you've also got to remember is I can remember the days when buying a server and it was $30,000 for a single server or microcomputers and mini computers back in the late 80s where the, your, where your CEO would go begging to the bank for the finance to buy it like a million dollars, $2 million. And it wasn't like today we build enterprise IT infrastructures out of cash flow, right? Year-to-year budgets. I can remember days when companies would sit there and have a 10-year plan for paying for their IT. That's right. Oh, you haven't, I, I, been, I haven't seen a 10-year plan in probably 10 years. <laughs> no, we're, I mean, the world is working off of cycles that are two to three years now. Well, I've seen cycles that, Four quarters. Wow. Okay. In IT, right? You know, they're literally only down to 12 months. And IT is literally running on a four quarter cycle. How much can we throw out in four quarters type stuff? Or how much That's can right. we converge? Or how much can we? And, you know, I don't particularly have a problem with that in the sense that, um, but, you know, my point is, is that enterprise IT is not buying the cheapest or the best. They're buying branded in the same way that Hermes handbags aren't necessarily the best handbag, but they're a trusted brand. And they're sold white glove and they're sold with lots of hands-on time, you know, pre-sales, post-sales resources. And I do wonder how much of the appeal of the public cloud is because we don't have to waste weeks of time in meetings with vendor salespeople. Oh, there's a lot of value in that. (laughs) (laughs) And and I I think part of the element too is, is if you look who the public cloud buyers are, it's not typically IT. It's line of business owners, right, that don't want to have to work with IT. 
Um, so that's, you know, I think that feeds into, in, into part of your argument there is that they don't have to have those vendor conversations. The line of business doesn't, right? They can I've just also focus seen on... IT tell the line of business to go and use the public cloud because they don't want to deal with the line of business. And three, um, IT tells them to go and use the public cloud because the internal processes don't let them do any different because the management has failed to modernize. That's right. Well, that's the whole shadow IT thing, right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I would tell people to go and do shadow IT because, you know, I could probably help them with their networking, but it's going to take six months for them to get a project raised and to get a sponsor and to get a budget and then get a project manager allocated and all the foolishness that we have in enterprise IT around process. Yeah, I, and, I, I can't disagree with you there. And that, I mean, so one of the other things is public cloud. Why do we hear so much about the public cloud, do you think? Yeah, well, it, it depends who you listen to. And I'm probably a little bit biased here in the sense that I think that you've got early adopters and people that did some really fantastic work in the space, like Adrian Cockroft, uh, obviously used to be, be with, with Netflix. You've got guys like Randy Bias. I think you've got really key influencers in the space that have validated the public cloud. I think the mistake, though, is that some of the pundits, uh, analysts, and other people have gravitated to this handful of what, who I call the Cloudarati mm. and said, this is the way to do it. And in my blog post, I'm pushing back against that. And that no, that's not. It's not a bad way to do it. It's just not the only way to do it. No, and it's validated by what we're seeing by adoption rates. And for whatever reason, there's kind of a mental mind block with some analysts and pundits that said, "Oh no, 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 no! If it's not an AWS cloud, it's not really a cloud. Yeah, if it's not self-service, if it's not with a credit card, if it's not on someone else's infrastructure, it's not right." And the silliest damn thing that I've heard out there, and Greg, I know you've seen this too, is the whole argument about chargebacks. And then, mm. to, and this is what happens when we kind of fixate on a very <laughs> singular definition of what a cloud is. Yeah. If you don't have chargebacks, you don't have a cloud. And I can't tell you how many, and I've kind of picked on one or two people um, in the Twitter sphere about this, but it is prevalent across the analyst industry where they fixated upon a definition for cloud that includes chargeback. And I've gotten in arguments with analysts who I won't name. Mm. That they are emphatic that if it doesn't have chargeback, it, it's not a cloud. But chargeback's been a thing in enterprise IT for a decade. And when I say thing, I mean it's been a dreadful failure. I've seen people pour millions of dollars into chargeback systems and never, ever got them to work. No, it's, it's a political hot potato in, yeah. in most companies. And the reality is, and, and I'll go on a limb here, this is only my own opinion. To me, chargebacks are an accounting function. It's not an IT execution function. Hmm. And I, I kind of mentally separate what the purpose, what the value of a chargeback is. There's no IT value to a chargeback. It no. is strictly an accounting function. So why are we hampering our definition of IT execution to an accounting function? It's, 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 it's absurd. It makes no sense. And, and, and I can argue till I'm blue in the face, and the, and the analyst will, will still push back and say, oh, chargeback, chargeback, chargeback. And then, then they retreat to, well, at least you've got showback. And showback is actually something that I think enterprises do use, right? They want to understand hmm. how the resources are being allocated. So one of the biggest things in the public, I think what you've hit there is the, the thing about visibility and analytics. For the right. first time, we've got visibility and some sort of analytic system showing me what I'm consuming. That's yeah. right. But it's not for an accounting function. It's for an execution function. Yeah, that's right. And e e when you're in the public cloud, you've still got operating systems. to. If you're using EAS in the public cloud, you've still got operating to administer. If you're just running 
even if you're just using serverless or functions as a service, fast, like which is what Amazon's branding of that is serverless, um, where you're just dumping code, you've still got code to run. You've still got to know networking. You've still got to be thinking about where your data is stored. You've still got to be thinking around um, you know, what sort of compute consumption, how much compute are you burning when you run these apps because I'm paying for every CPU cycle I'm burning, right? None of that's changed um, at the end of the day. The cost is still there. It's just bundled up differently. It is. And Greg, as you well know, that, you know, that whole shared services model that, that, that IT's been providing since the beginning of enterprise IT, that, that's not changing either. And so, and not to you know, beat a dead horse here, but the, the whole model for, for chargebacks does not work for the enterprise. It hasn't in the last no. 30 years, and it's not in the next 30 years. It's not enterprise IT that had a problem with chargebacks in my experience. It's accounting. Right. When I went to accounting and said, here's the chargebacks, accounting said, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> yeah, I can't bill HR for their their resources here. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't work that way. No. And I think that's the difference between when you've got analysts that have come from the vendor community and never worked for an end user. Mm. They don't get it. No. They don't understand those fundamental things, and they lock themselves into the, these positions. And you're asking me, what you know, why is public cloud so sexy? That's a really great example of the disconnect between somebody that's observing what's going on in the industry and somebody that's actually in the industry. Mm. And it, to me, it, it, it's terrible because you've got, especially Gartner, is such a strong influencer in this space yeah. that their they're, they're disconnect on what public and private cloud adoption really looks like well, this is, is, is atrocious. Thing. Well, there's, a, there's an internal feedback loop there. Gartner gets all its information from its customers and from the vendors who appeal to it. It doesn't go outside of its base to talk to people who aren't Gartner customers, right? So you talk to an, an average analyst about where they get their information from, and they're talking to the customers who buy reports for, from them and yep. listen to what the analyst has to say. Well, like, it's interesting to see what your peers are doing, but there's no fresh ideas in that loop, right? If your only input source is from the vendors who make products that customers want, and your only input source is the vendors, is the customers who are buying the gear that the vendors make. There's no fresh ideas coming out in that loop. No, but you know what, Greg? It's kind of funny, and it, I just connected some dot, some dots here as we're talking. You, know, you talk about you know how IT purchases have, have been very brand focused and, and, and vendor focused because it's kind of a safe space for them. And I think when you look at how enterprise IT leverages uh, analysts. They look for that safe space. You know, it's safe for them to pick the solution. There's nothing creative in that feedback they're getting from Gartner, but it is safe, right? It's it's a way that they can validate. Yeah, I call um, that historical. So my definition of advice from most analyst firms is that they've documented history, and they're telling you what people did three years ago, because the things that they're putting in their report are based in surveys of what customers have actually done. So. They're not telling you what's happening next year. They're telling you what was successful for the last three years for somebody else. So the real technology was implemented five years ago. Well, and I, I will make the distinction with 451 Research because I think if you if you look at this, uh, what they call um, the voice of the enterprise, um, and what I based off of um, my blog post on uh, cloud adoption, you know, they do ask that question, what's the budget and plan look like six months out and two years out? And I, it, that reveals a lot of information. It tells you certainly where enterprise priorities are at and what's impacting their, their decisions, not just on historically, like you said, what did they buy last year? This is 
what what are the plans going into the future? And to me, that's valuable information to have. Now, it's it's only one data point of probably hundreds that you should consider when you're trying to build a strategy like this. But it's one, I think, a very valid data point. Trickle down. So another one of the topics that I think is unlost in the public cloud is that when we have something that works at scale and we see it, we can take that, shrink it, and give it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right? And one of the things that, and it's going to take a while for this to happen because the technology that, you know, the big, like what Facebook is doing, like take a look at what Facebook's done. They've built something that works at scale. They open source it so that it makes it easier for them to recruit, which is why they do it, right? Because if you open source your technology, other people can use it. They can play with it. So when you go out in the recruiting market, you can say, have you worked with our this our storage or our open compute or our blah, blah, blah. It makes it really easy to recruit, which is why they yep. do it, right? And of course, that's why we hear so much about public cloud. Public cloud companies have um, armadas of marketing people out there speaking at public event because that's how they generate customers. That's why my theory is that we hear so much about public cloud because they spend their time basically out there recruiting for customers and recruiting for staff. And that's why there's so much noise around the public cloud. That's my pet theory about that one. Well, let me ask you this. Why wouldn't the traditional vendors do the same thing? Because they're mature businesses and they're looking to cut costs so they don't have marketing people out there. And they've also got nothing cool to talk about. (laughs) They're still producing, like, you know, companies are still producing the same storage arrays they were producing 20 years ago. You know, the big computing companies, IBM is still producing mainframes, HPE is still shipping HPUX, Cisco is still shipping the same routers that it's been shipping for the past 15 years. What, where's the, where's the sizzle? Right. Well, I look. Can, can I put my vendor hat on for a second, Greg? Yeah. Okay. Hey, warning. <laughs> warning. Vendor hat in ghost. Well, I, I, I'm I'm not going to be doing any pimping here, but I I will just tell you for, philosophically because I think you hit on some things, but I think it was true for some legacy vendors. I know. I can tell you that inside of Hitachi, you know, one of the big things because. I think the advantage that we have is that we're not like EMC, HP, NetApp, and companies that we're typically kind of lumped in with, because we've got this whole manufacturing side of the business and healthcare side of the business with Hitachi Limited, which is like the Siemens uh, of Asia, right, mm-hmm. and the GE of Asia. So we've got kind of a, a different sort of a backdrop where we're actually drinking our own Kool-Aid and using it in technology, building trains, building infrastructure, building smart cities that HP, EMC, Dell, NetApp don't have. So I will tell you what, what, what you know, gets people's eyes lit up and bright is when we're talking about Hitachi Insight and our social innovation strategy. And I'll, I'll use a buzz phrase here, the Internet of Things. We call it the Internet of Things that matter. I will tell you that that is a guiding, motivating force inside of our organization as far as where we're going in our direction. And when you talk about, you know, you know, vendors not doing anything sexy or different, um, I can't disagree with you mm. with the, with the typical traditional legacy vendors. I will tell you that inside of Hitachi, it's a little bit different. Now that doesn't ignore our core business and, and our infrastructure business, right? That's what's keeping the lights on at, at HDS. And I'm not, I'm not going to kid anybody yeah, about and that, that. And that, I mean, that's the challenge of course, is that Sometimes I describe it as you know. Remember the prisoners in the comic in the cartoons? They always had a big ball and chained to their ankle. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but do you know what those? And and I did. I've had this discussion with a couple of people. Like one guy at Cisco, I said, "Why are you making this awful, awful product?" And you know it's rubbish. And he goes, "Because somebody's going to spend four billion dollars on that for the next 
10 years and we're going to make this much profit. And he said, I know it's stupid, but there's stupid customers out there who want to buy it. Well, I, I'd like to think our customers are smarter than that, but <laughs> <laughs> you already agreed earlier on they're probably not. <laughs> yeah, no, you said that. I didn't. <laughs> well, I put words in your mouth now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nearly got it. Nearly got it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the on average, your average customer is not that smart because that's the definition of average, right? I guess the flip side of this is that, you know. Those products like, you know, storage arrays, there are customers out there who are going to own that storage array for 20 or 30 years. There are parts of the market who are signing up with vendors for 30-year maintenance deals on products, like no. in industrial software or frequency trading or something like that. Like there are people buying HPUX systems. I asked one of the HPX, and he said, we've got 30-year maintenance contracts on some of this. We are never going to stop making those things. For well, decades. it's cliche, but look at the mainframe. And now... Would you argue that the mainframe has survived because the, the, the vendors are you know are, are, are pushing mainframes, or is it because customer adoption hasn't shifted off of mainframe? And you know, I think that's just being responsive to the market and, and where the buyers are. But that industry is changing. I mean, our whole industry is changing, Greg. And I don't, mm. I, I don't make it sound like you know, stick in the mud mainframe. Hey, this is, you know, that business is, is not growing. Um, but it's a sizable business nonetheless, and, and that's why IBM is still in it. Mm. I'm just saying, you know, but if you've got that sort of unsexy, uncool legacy holding you back, can you move forward and become something exciting? Yeah, you got to adopt an internal bimodal IT. No, I'm just kidding. started <laughs> <laughs> on bimodal. No, I know, no, I know. I'm oh, throw, throw, throw up a softball for you there, Greg. Oh, bimodal <laughs> drives me nuts, right? Because bimodal is what you're doing today. It's not yeah. an innovation. It's what we do now. It's every, it's the source of our problems. It's not a solution. You know, I'm I'm kind of torn on this one, Greg, because I inherently believe just what you said there, right? Yep. I, I, you can't disagree with that. I will, on the flip side, tell you that some of our largest customers, and I, first of all, I, I will say this with the context of my own bias, that and, and this is well documented. If if, if you go look at, at, at some of the commentary, the negative commentary around bimodal IT. I'm not, you and I are not the first ones to, to, uh, to whistle this tune. But I will tell you, anecdotally, some of our largest customers have, have adopted bimodal um, IT strategies, and, they're, and it's working. Not, yeah. not, and I'm saying these are like really a handful of really big um, IT organizations. And they're How dysfunctional must those organizations be but for mediocrity to work? They, I will tell you that they are satisfied with the results that they're getting. So here, that's a kind of a challenge for me, right? Because instinctively, I look at this the same way you look at it. This doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Why are you duplicating your environments? You, that's not being strategic. It, it looks like a hedge, right? Hmm. And so I, I, I don't disagree with you. But then I also see on, on the other side, you know, some, some really big organizations, some, some names that you've heard look, of. Look, any process can work, right? Even ITIL can work for some people. <laughs> Even Six Sigma. Remember Six Sigma back oh, in the late uh, 90s? Yeah. Even, you know, continuous improvement. Even continuous delivery. All agile. All of them can work. The question is, which is the one that you want to bring forward, right? And to me, bimodal is what everybody's doing because it's the only way out of... Remember the way I talked about the ball and chain? You've got to recognize that you've got a ball and chain and the size of the ball is all that legacy technology you've got in your data center. And you want to do the new stuff. 
But all that legacy stuff can't be new. It can't be cloud-enabled. It can't be containerized. It can't be virtualized. It can't be cat, a pet, you know, this pets versus cattle. It can't be cattle because you've got a Microsoft SQL database in there. And guess what? Microsoft SQL can't be virtualized very well. It runs better on bare metal. Even if you do, where's the storage going to go? Well, that storage has to be, you know, we suddenly rely on that database to be snapshotted five times a day. So where am I going to do a snapshot if I move to distributed storage? Oh. You know, like, well, I've got to change my backup strategy. Well, how do I change my backup strategy for Ceph? Where do, you know, if I'm using a distributed storage system, what, where's my backups? Am I still using Tate for, you know, just insurmountably complex transition issues. Bimodal doesn't fix those. It just ignores them. No, it, yeah, that's right. It's like, it'll die eventually. <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> that's the philosophy. But again, here, Greg, this is one of those things. I can't disagree with you. I think you were absolutely right. I'm just telling you what, what and again, anecdotally, not scientific, not research, anecdotally, I, I, I could cite you a couple of companies that have, have adopted a bimodal IT strategy. They're reasonably happy uh, with that decision, um, and it befuddles me. Um, I'll be honest, because I, I don't know how strategic that really is. I think it, it's a bit of a cop out. Mm. But how do you argue against you know somebody implementing it, and, and they're happy with the results they're getting from it? It's it's tough to argue against that, right? But again, it's only anecdotal. Yeah, but and like philosophically, I, said, I still agree with you. Everything works once. Right. <laughs> the question is, will it still be working in two or three years' time? And I think bimodal has been proven comprehensively to be a miserable failure because I've been using it for 20 years. I just <laughs> like it, right? You have a project team. They do the new stuff, the cool stuff, and then they throw it over the wall to the ops team who just keep it running. That's bimodal. I agree. Completely agree, Greg. Mm. I'm just saying that that when an enterprise, for, for, forget the strategy, right? Forget bimodal or anything else. You know, the biggest challenge is is that when you you have a philosophy that you think, and this goes for Gartner too when they talk about cloud, right? They're all in on public cloud, private cloud sucks. Right? When you when you the the challenge is is when you kind of bake yourself into a philosophy, mm. and then you see these outliers, these anecdotal stories that kind of move against that philosophy you have, mm. you would challenge her to kind of reconcile that. And, and, and again, I, I'm not disagreeing with you at all, but how would you react when you see a company that's, that, that in their opinion has successfully adopted it? You know, it, yeah. it just is what it is. And, and <laughs> you need I can't to, argue well, against you know, it. My instant reaction is we have to do something to do some change, right? We know that the current wave of IT, the current set of IT infrastructures that we build today are not fit for purpose. They're not useful going forward. Uh, I I don't disagree with you in, in philosophy, right? Yep. Uh, um, I, I think we're on the same page there. You know, I, I want to bring something up. Can I, can I throw a curveball at you, Greg? Please. I remember years ago, you and I, um, I don't even remember what conference it was at, but you, you and I were talking about this. These were the early days of, of uh, V-Blocks and VCE, mm. and you were working with um, a client, and I remember you raving about the whole concept, this is in the very early days of converged infrastructure. Yep. And I, re, I don't know if you remember that conversation. And I learned a lot from that conversation with you about, I don't, know, I don't want to call it IT philosophy, but certainly where the industry was moving. You were ahead of the game then, right? Um, when you were talking about the value of procuring V-blocks. And I was really, really in, in, impressed by that. And it, it, it left an impression on me. And I'd be curious, and I know this is your podcast, but I'm going to throw a question out to you, Greg. Mm. 
Has your philosophy around converged infrastructure changed in the last five years? Uh, not really. So I believe that buying converged and hyperconverged, for that matter, makes perfect practical project sense in the sense that it's much easier for me to write a purchase order for a, a limited function, limited choices system. So when I worked for a big, for a, a cloud startup, for a while, we were buying V-blocks. And you know why? Just because I didn't have to go and talk to the storage person and the server person and the virtualization person and the networking person and get them to agree on what we were going to buy. You had your requirements already spec'd out. Yep. You just and had to so, press the easy button. Yeah. So then I just moved straight past that. However, I am remain convinced that disaggregated systems are the future. That is, the idea of paying a price premium for someone to pre-integrate blade servers, like the V-Block model is that you pay a premium for bladed servers in chassis for um, storage arrays that come in legacy formats. Or even if you look at Nutanix, which is a, a, sec, a group of servers and storage and networking put together and pre-tested, that's just a temporary blip in the market as we transition from where we were, which is cut, you know servers from brands, that were monolithic, bare metal, to where we were in the future. So the future of IT is not um, converged systems or even hyper-converged systems, it's disaggregated systems. So it'll be one RU's servers with lots of hard drives in them, just um, distributed storage systems and buy them white box off the shelf. Right. And that but story has played out over and over and over. So when I go and talk to people in very big companies like Salesforce or big financial institutions... There are parts of the business buying those branded converged solutions because it makes sense for them. But there are other parts of these organizations that you never hear about, by the way. They never talk in public for reasons that we could we could probably talk about. But they are building white box, no-name brand, open-stacked, virtualized, containerized infrastructures today that are just nothing to do with converged systems. Right, right. But those are probably very large enterprises, right, where they can invest in those in those resources and build them themselves and implement that software that sits on top of that themselves, right? It's any organization that has a competent management team uh. to not get in the way, <laughs> in, right? And the competent management team will do two things. One, recognize they don't know something. And two, go out and find the engineers who can who can get these modern systems or this modern way of doing business on, you know, cheap, commoditized product run open source software on the top and then bring my commercial stuff on the top of that and build your own private cloud out of that, the orders of magnitudes that you will save are just vast. But it all comes down to management being not getting in the way and B, recognizing that they need top-notch engineers in-house, which is definitely anti-trend. That is not on trend. Now, some analysts would tell you that you can only do that if you're, ha if you're at scale, if you're of Walmart size to do that. That would be false. So there are many, many organizations that are doing that. But the only reason that analysts don't know about it is because they don't, they're not customers. Because they're not talking to those guys, right. Yep. yep. And there are reasons, right? So one of the reasons is that if you're a very large company and you've got discount deals negotiated with big vendors and you suddenly um, start out there talking about like Walmart, right, about your OpenStack and how committed you are to low-cost OpenStack and you're hiring hundreds of developers – all of a sudden your discounts get wiped because the vendors say you're no longer loyal to me and then all of a sudden that just impacts all of your legacy. That is the it, single biggest objection I've heard. 
So that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, that literally I, has millions of dollars worth of impact to the bottom line. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely does. And I think it's really interesting, though, because we talk, just talk, you opened the door on, on OpenStack there, which you know, goes back to our private cloud discussion. You know, one of the challenges that I've seen is, especially when we talk about legacy vendors, and I think I can speak to this space a little bit, the, the biggest challenge with OpenStack and OpenStack adoption I see right now is that the, the traditional vendors have not created the easy button for adoption for these things. And so you are left with kind of the, uh, I don't know, call it homemade, but you, you, you've got very enterprising IT leaders that are left to learn how to adopt these technologies. And I think that's going to be a challenge for OpenStack. That's not, that's not a, a damning statement to OpenStack, but I think it's certainly a very obvious challenge to OpenStack. Mm, okay, so if you, do we want to go down the what's wrong with OpenStack route? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't know if we do. But you, I mean, you mentioned it as one way. Yeah. Okay. So that, that company. So there's plenty of problems with OpenStack, right? One is it's still new, so it's only three or four years old. And if there's one thing I've learned from watching open source and particularly the Linux ecosystem, you're looking at a minimum of ten years for this to mature. Okay. Yes. Rule one, right? So we're only in the early adopters phase if you're lucky. It's probably even, you know, alpha still with OpenStack. Second, how do you make money when you're a vendor and you're used to selling many millions of dollars to a customer at 85% gross margin, right? Straight up, right? Or let's say you're making 60% gross margin. How do you get 60% gross margin out of an open source package? By being the services arm of it. Right, but you can't make money out of service, right? Well, I would argue HP. that Morant is probably doing a pretty good job at it. Not so well. I'm not so positive about that, right? If 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 doing professional services was a successful business, why did HPE just pick up their services business and push it into CSC? Why is IBM running out their services business and selling them off in parts or transitioning it to India? Mm. Right? Why is Cisco pulling back from? Uh, three years ago, Cisco was out there saying to customers, it's all about services. We're going to have packaged services offerings for you. And this year, it's all about partners delivering services again. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I, I see it too, Greg. I, yeah. I, again, again, I can't disagree with you, but I think there are uh, a handful of companies that are doing it right. Marantis is one of them. You know, and like in Red Hat is the only successful open source software. And there are companies doing it, but they're not running at scale and they're not having a substantial impact on the market overall, in my opinion. They're having a nascent or an emerging impact, but they're not fundamentally making... Like, it's fundamentally... Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, right? And in this, but by the same token, there's Azure Private Cloud, which is a product from Microsoft. People aren't adopting that either. How well, many customers I'd... are coming to you saying, I'm implementing Azure Private Cloud, sell me infrastructure? Well, no, it, that's not the conversation, Greg. You know that. But they, I would, I would argue that Azure Private Cloud, especially from the vendor implementation perspective, of that, is, is very immature. I, I mean, it's even younger than OpenStack, right? In that respect, and I think in the next two years, you're going to see a very sharp uh, ramp up uh, around Azure. I, I don't want to give anything away. I, I know what we're doing and mm. working on in yeah. in that space. I don't want to get get in a, in so, a vendor so pitch here. So my point is, is but that, I think I think yeah, that's, that's going to be a growing market. So I agree with you, but my point is that Azure Private Cloud hasn't exactly set the world on fire either. So no. why would OpenStack? No, I, I I and I think 
I don't know. And it's not going to have the levels of support. And like, and Azure Private Cloud has all the hard bits done for you. This is how it's going to work. This is the storage. This is the storage strategy. This is the compute strategy. Here's the networking strategy. Here's the blah, 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 right? And there's very few choices you buy it. But OpenStack has the classic open source problem of you've got a billion possible choices. How do you nether them down? Right. Mm-hmm. Have you taken a look at vRealize? Uh, yeah. Let's just leave that one. It's, it doesn't work so well. <laughs> it, and again, same thing. I mean, what's that, five years into it? And it's still got years before it's ready for ordinary people to use. Yes, and I would argue that that is where traditional vendors mm-hmm. could. I think there's a window of opportunity for the traditional vendors, be it Dell, HP, Hitachi, and others, that can add incredible value mm-hmm. in that space. But I would say the jury's still out. Uh, 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 whether those companies have, have, have I don't, I don't think it's. A, I know some people have closed the door on V Realize. I wouldn't close the door on V Realize yet. It's possible, but V Realize now competes against OpenStack and Azure Private Cloud and public clouds, AWS and Microsoft Azure mm-hmm. Public Cloud, as well as Google Compute. Right. I, yeah. Absolutely. So, so the the potential for them to capture revenue. And for customers to say, I'm going to go with vRealize instead of, you know, a lot of people can avoid putting, making a decision to implement private cloud by saying, I'll do this project on AWS or I'll move my email to Azure or I'll use Google, I'll use Google Docs or I'll use Microsoft Office 365 or whatever. That's just, that's all cloud. And you reduce the pressure on your IT infrastructure by getting rid of it in little bits and pieces. Right. So Fair you enough. can avoid implementing a private cloud until it's too late, I think. <laughs> it, and that's the way Microsoft's working at it now. We'll take your email, we'll take your Microsoft Office, and some storage. Some of your legacy storage will take that, and then just little pieces that are just going to eat away at the data center until they capture it all in Azure. Yeah, before you you blink and then you're all you're all yes. Microsoft. Is that it? Yeah. Well, or before you suddenly find that you know sixty percent of your infrastructure is in Azure and you go, oh, we'll just move the rest of it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yep. I, why why wouldn't you? Um, sort of thing. So I do, I do think that you know if you're going and the challenge with OpenStack is you've got to overcome the fact that people can do it for free and that a lot. Of, it's also very complicated and so it makes it very difficult to adopt when it's hard. You know, you're not just buying a storage array or buying a, a core switch. Those are hard, but buying a private cloud system with a, an automation engine and a billing engine and a provisioning engine, those are not insignificant pieces of work. No, no, they're not. And I think, you know, we all know the the, the large, successful OpenStack deployments, Walmart, PayPal, you name it. Um, you know, they've, they've had the resources to overcome those challenges. So my belief is that we've had a decade of big vendors telling customers, if you just bought our newest, bestest, most expensivest thingamy, you know, bigger storage array, smarter chassis switch, you could get rid of some headcount. And companies went, great, got rid of the headcount, and then realized that actually your headcount is what enables the return on investment from these assets. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. It, it, but I think this is cyclical, right, Greg? I, I, I think there's going to be a swing back to that, don't, don't you? I think DevOps is that swing. DevOps right. is about hiring people to do, but they're not, you know, to put more people back into infrastructure. So if you're a company that's suddenly building a DevOps team of 10 people, 
they're in addition to your existing. They're not 10 taken away from. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And, and that's where we're going to, I think we're going to see the biggest growth in IT human resources, at, quite candidly. Well, we have to. I think customers have to. I think the, there's a sort of a slow, whether management as a general, like as a very broad swath is smart enough to understand that the more they invest in people <laughs> in IT, the better, the more productive it becomes. Right? I love your total disrespect of IT management. <laughs> <laughs> so let's look at the evidence. <laughs> in all honesty, like look at your average IT manager. He's usually, you know, somebody who was a brilliant engineer and then moved up the food chain to... Uh, because that's where the money is. Like managers, most big companies have a policy of um, technical staff can't get paid more than a manager. Right. So you want more money when you get to, so they turned into a manager and then you typically became very unhappy because they're doing this very dumb work, um, like adding up columns in spreadsheets or something, you know, and sending emails and sitting in meetings all day um, instead of doing real work for a living. Right. Well, I would argue that, what I'm seeing is the is the rise of authority of the of the business unit to make those kind of IT adoption decisions. I think you know one of the things that came out of this 451 research, um, and I didn't focus on it at all, at all. But if you look at the adoption of different cloud technologies, the biggest one is software as a service. You know, I kind of focused on the the IS side of this, but if you if you look at what's actually being adopted, software as a service, and who's driving that? Is that IT or is that the business unit? And I would argue that's probably the business unit that's that's driving uh, software as a service. If you, if so, let's take the, the the biggest SaaS company in the world, Salesforce. Yes. And what's driving that? That's the sales organizations from those companies. That's an IT. IT is not saying let's outsource our CRM. <laughs> that's a, that doesn't come, that's not coming from IT. That's coming from the the VP of sales saying so I want the tools that makes it easier. So I read a really really good um, blog post on this this week, with it, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes about that. And this guy basically pointed out he's a developer first. He's a serial startup uh, person, and he's been a, a worker. And he basically makes the point that um, let me just see why software that you build in the cloud. So if you're making a service that if you're making software that you want to sell to customers, um, so it's called blog.lucis.org. And he talks about, do you want to go on prem? And what he says is, if you go and put software in the customer's hands, you basically lose the ability to manage it because they're going to put it on hardware that you can't manage on a platform that you don't know how much resources there are. You don't have enough storage. You can't do logging. You can't release bug fixes in a timely manner. You can't use the automation platform. There are failure modes you can't have. There are footprints you can't see. The support model becomes dysfunctional because the developer has to talk to the customer who goes through a baffle. Do you know what I mean? Right. And his point is, is that, you should only do it in the cloud where you have complete control over your software. So imagine if you're building a, a, a software app that uses a React cluster. And so you ship it out to the customer with a five-node React cluster, and all of a sudden it comes unstuck. How does the customer know to administer React these days when most of them are barely competent at running Microsoft SQL Server? <laughs> Right. right, and try and explode, uh, explain, um, you know, a NoSQL database like a React cluster to an IT manager. He's just going to look at you as if you're like an alien. His eyes are going to start spinning to the back of his head. 
And he's not, he's just going to sit there and nothing's going in, right? Hermetically sealed head. <laughs> nothing's going in, nothing's coming out. It's just whatever, blah, blah, blah. Wah, 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 right? You know, oh, no, we had a quorum-based distributed data store and one of the quorums fell over and now our databases are out of sync. Oh, come on. You know, so this article is just fantastic. You really want to read it and basically explains why. And that's one of the reasons why I think SaaS works is that you, as a vendor, if you're making software and you run it in the public cloud, you're going to be more successful with it at a cheaper price because inherently you're close to the software. Right. Well, my only point in bringing that my only point in bringing that up, Greg, was to to reference you know who are the IT buyers say who are the strate- the strategic guys in the organization that are making some of those decisions, and I, I would just say that I don't I'll throw a, a dart out there. I'll say in the last five years, this is this has shifted pretty dramatically to the line of business. I think yes, and the line of business has done that because IT managers are pretty foolish. Yeah, they don't understand yeah. the lines of business. They're usually tech, you know, engine. They're not well trained. They're not thinking of the business. They're focused on the technology because no. they're ex-technologists. Bingo. You know, or they're managers who don't actually understand what they're doing. They don't have a sense for what technology is. They've got MBAs, so they're really good at moving numbers around on spreadsheets. But technology doesn't permit you to be abstracted away from the line of. I don't know how many of them have MBAs. Some of them probably do, but I, I think the way you, you talked about how, how does an IT manager become an IT manager is they've been groomed through IT. Yeah. They've not been groomed through the business, the strategy. They've not had P&L responsibility. And I think that is why you're seeing. Well, I'm using the, a very broad brush. <laughs> I know. Well, we are. But, I mean, that yeah, we, a, we kind of have to here. But I think that's where this transition into, and the focus has got to be on business strategy first. And to bring this around full circle you know, to the beginning of this, of this conversation, Greg, I, I, I think that the changing, changing landscape here in IT is about business strategy. I don't think it's purely an IT decision. I, it goes back to culture and the business and what the objectives of that business are and how can IT help drive profitability and success in those business goals. Okay, let me take it a step further. What we're seeing is a transition away from IT helping them to them asking IT to help them be successful. Yes. So IT used to go to the business units and say, we can help you. And the people in the business units would sit there and say, we don't understand computers, it's too hard for us. What you're seeing is a shift where the the line of business actually says, you know what, computers can actually help us. They can make us more productive, make us more profitable. We can replace headcount with machines, with artificial intelligence, with data lakes, with machine learning, with big data, right? And all of a sudden, what I think the trigger is not that IT has lost control. It's that the people in the other business units are suddenly realizing that IT can help them. Yeah, and and, you know, and they're taking kind of, ownership of it for the first time. I, I, I think this is kind of a, a cheap way of describing it, but I've heard some people kind of make the correlation between the adoption of iPhones mm. and their application-centric network, or I'm sorry, mm. the application focus of their mobile phone technology. Oh, yeah. And because they're starting to actually learn, oh, wow, look what these different things can do. And now they're asking those more intelligent questions. They're putting pressure on IT to oh, either okay. deliver that service or I'm going to go outside of IT and find the application that can do this for me. Well, the thing um, is that they look at their smartphone. One, they learn that technology is easy and consumable. Two, their smartphone apps work better than the corporate apps. Yeah. Mostly because they're better invested in, right? There's more money in a smartphone app 
because there's a vast number of consumers and there's better financing. Like the way the model works for that is better. Um, and then they sit there and say, I'm going to measure the success of enterprise IT against a smartphone app. Which of that's course, true. Yep, right? But that's great because at least they're bought in for the first time ever. In the 30 years that I've been in IT, most business units, just even the accountants, they said, I don't want to know. I just want to use it. Why don't you just make this work for me? Right? And <laughs> I don't want to know about storage. I don't want to know about backups. I don't, want to, I don't care what the software does. I just want it to work. And for the first yeah, time, we're seeing the business units buy in. That's right. And that's the challenge for IT because you can't be business as usual when your, your own consumers of your, of your internal technology are, are quickly getting up to speed about what their options are. And so the, the, the opportunity is for IT to be strategic. If they're not going to be strategic, that stuff's going to get pulled out from underneath them. Mm. Well, no, no, I don't think they have to be strategic. They just have to be sensitive to the fact that the customers are buying in for the first time. It's not, you can't do what we used to do, which is we told the business units what they could have and how they would have it. Now that they're actually bought in and they're making decisions, that's great, right? Embrace it. Because if, if they're bought in for the first time, they're finally going to do something growing up. Right. Maybe. I don't disagree with that, but I, I think there's a challenge. I, I, I don't think every IT department is like that, Craig. I think there's, I think there's a lot of... Let, you let me go back this. to Look, my point about... I, you, the you said this before about IT managers, right? And, yeah. and how strategic and, and, and what kind of decisions are they making? I, I'm validating that point, but by what we're observing in the market, either those IT managers are going to evolve and become more strategic or they're going to be dinosaurs. Oh, no, I'm not so apocalyptic. If, if we were going to become dinosaurs, that would have happened already, right? We've been running legacy IT for 15 years. Like IT should have been ad adopting virtualization in the mid-2000s. We should have been doing software-defined networking in late like 2008, 2009. Right. But the big vendors, I think, have a stake in making sure we don't change. They want to sell the products they have and retain the profit margins of selling legacy products. So they've slowed or pushed back against change in the market and taught customers to wait for their brands to tell them what they want. Right. Mm. And I think there's been a massive retardation and drag on the industry in the form of how the market is. And the breakthrough of OpenStack and software-defined storage and SDN is driven entirely by customers and not by vendors. And vendors are steadily losing control of customers' needs because they held us back for so long to sell us legacy stuff. Wow. Wow. I guess I see, I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I see both sides of that coin, Greg. Because yes. I, I, I think that OpenStack doesn't exist un, unless there's, there's vendor support for it. And the legacy vendor support, right? So, well, OpenStack only is actually built in spite of vendors. And oh, I don't think it exists right now. The problems of OpenStack are actually driven because the vendors got involved. And there are some parts of the OpenStack project. Remember, there's hundreds of projects inside of OpenStack, mm -hmm. and quite a lot of them will tell you that vendor involvement is not a feature; it's a problem. Oh, I yes, it's a blessing and a curse. Yes, and, I, yeah. but there there is an upside to that where I don't think. I, uh, I guess you know opinions are cheap on this, right? I would just say that I doubt OpenStack would have any measure of success that it has right now if it hadn't been for broad vendor support and adoption. And that's I think, the yeah, I agree. I was going to say that is the blessing and the curse, right? Right. It's the resources that the vendors bring actually makes OpenStack possible, but in some parts, some vendors don't play well. They're actually causing us more problems than they solve.
Oh, I, I would agree with that. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big challenge you know, for the project leads inside of OpenStack. I've seen it. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I can't disagree with it. Now, that, now um, just, just to be clear, those exact same problems exist inside of big companies. Look at like uh, inside of EMC with the shift to software defined storage, but they're still iterating their legacy arrays. Like VNX just went from something to something. Inside of um, Cisco, they've got ACI literally cannibalizing the business, other business units in the data center. Um, massive tensions, fights between the different businesses as each one tries to hit its numbers and meet its goals and things like that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not, you know, and that's across all the companies. It's not just, I'm not only picking out those two because they're high profile and they're well known and it's easy to see those particular examples. But, you know, that HPE, many, many others. Well, and I think that's an advantage for, you know, an EMC and Dell being private, right? They can do those, they can, you know, they can have those internal fights without any external exposure that HP has. <laughs> Yeah. As as they're turning over the apple cart, right? Yeah, this is, you know, that's part of the benefit, quite candidly, that Hitachi has because we are a subsidiary um, and not a publicly traded company. We've got the advantages of if we want to make a pivot or changes or whatever, we don't have the scrutiny of, of the public markets to do that. No. And I, I look, I, I know a lot of people are underestimating Dell EMC and what's going to happen on that. We can speculate to, you know, to our, to our boo in the face here. I will say the one positive thing mm. is, is that uh, EMC will be able to blow themselves up without the exposure uh, of a public market. And well, they have I to think, do something, right? They, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a really good um, uh, blog post today or yesterday on Storage Mojo talking about... Is that the lipstick on the pig one? No, no. This one is uh, uh, <laughs> Enterprise Storage. Depending on how you measure Enterprise Storage, if you calculate how much storage is sold by revenue inside servers as instead of just counting arrays. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this idea of distributed storage. Right. So, if you count... The storage that's the, the sort of the servers that you're using to build distributed storage engines using whatever platform. HPE is a bigger storage company than EMC. Not by much, but by a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's basically saying that enterprise storage goes inside. But if you talk about the external enterprise storage, like that is the array market, EMC mm-hmm. is selling um, in, in a quarter $1.4 billion worth of enterprise storage. And NetApp's doing 650. HP is doing 550. But Array-based storage is a shrinking market, shrinking at 5% per quarter. And distributed storage is growing at 10 to 15% per quarter. So he's basically making the point that enterprise storage is dead, is shrinking. It's not going to die completely, right? But a, gr- a shrinking market is a dying market. You know what? I, I, I think it's transitioning, right? Mm-hmm. It's getting more dense. It's getting faster. Yeah. And I, I the, look, the external storage capacities aren't shrinking by five percent a year. Oh no, no, no! But the so, sales volume is. The, yeah, the sales volume is, but I, I, th- I think that's a reflection of the transition in transition in the industry. So yes, the dollar dollar revenue wise, yes, it absolutely is. But if you look at the density um, in the capacity. Um, it's not changing. And I will tell you, you know, it's kind of funny. You know, IDC likes to report, um, you know, what all the different storage vendors are doing. And I can tell you uh, from a Hitachi perspective that it's really interesting. I don't think you can compare a lot of, 
a lot of the analysts, and IDC particularly, look at this as a zero-sum game, that if the legacy vendors are uh, losing market share or sales volume, that that's being offset by the public cloud. And I would argue to you, and I, I think it's one of the, the, the stories that this industry, that the IT tech media don't cover enough, is that I would argue that a lot of those vendors are also the arms dealers for those for the largest public clouds in the world. I know that's true for Tachi. Oh. Um, you know, we're a supplier to some of the largest public clouds in the world, mm. and it's not so for us. It's not a zero sum game, right? I mean, mm, the, mm, mm. you can either buy your storage from us, or you can buy it from your public cloud provider. At the at the end of the day, Hitachi is still the company that's providing that infrastructure. And so I don't look at this as cleanly as some analysts look at that, that this is a zero-sum game. Yeah, um, okay. Well, you've got a sense of optimism. I think the sales of traditional IT infrastructure will shrink slowly for a piece, for a while. I And the th- where the growth in legacy enterprise IT, whether it's networking, storage, compute, servers, you know, cabling, data centers or whatever – is you know the market's still growing at twenty to thirty percent per annum, but that twenty or thirty percent is in other stuff. It's just shifted yes. over to it's gone to public cloud, it's gone to internal private cloud. Some of it's gone to OpenStack. Some of it's going to go blah blah blah. You know, and some of it's going to commodity. I mean, let's just call it what it is. You know, buying cheap servers from overseas. Yes, and you know, or whatever. There's lots and lots of stuff. But yes. Right. All right, Greg, I think we've just about um, done this as far as we can do it in the hour and a half that we've taken to get this far. Why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? So you can find me in, on Twitter. Uh, my, la- my Twitter handle is just my last name, at Nierman, K-N-I-E-R-I-E-M-E-N. In the fall, I'll be back on Speaking in Tech, uh, which is distributed by the Register When's every fall? Wednesday. What's that? When's fall? Fall, lots of people, yeah, fall is only something that's geolocated to a unique part of the world. Yes, yeah, uh, I would say August, September. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll be back on there. But Sarah, Eddie, uh, Amy Lewis, and Ben Keeps are kind of keeping the boat afloat. Funny thing, Greg, is, and you'll appreciate this, since I've been off the podcast, the downloads have increased 25 to 30%. <laughs> so I don't know what that says. Maybe I shouldn't come back. <laughs> yeah, you might want to come back, or maybe you might want to just, yeah. Well, thanks for listening to Packet Pushes today. You can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushes.net. This show will have a blog post going with it. There's a bunch of links in there to uh, blog posts that uh, Greg and myself have done and also to any other links that we've referenced in the show. You can go along there. Uh, and also something about Mirantis, who posted something fairly interesting about infrastructure software is dead. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at, at Packet Pushes. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Please rate us on iTunes it's the best way and I've just spent many many hours fixing iTunes and just a nightmare on sticks but last but not least remember that too much networking would never be enough